My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab, the Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Susan Parody, an assistant professor of biology at Brandeis University. Thanks for joining us today, Professor Parody. Thanks for having me. So can you talk a little bit about how you initially became interested in science and uh, at what point you realized science was maybe something you wanted to do? Absolutely. I have to say that I think that it all started in high school and it actually started with my AP chemistry class. And so I, I did my undergrad at Cornell University and I initially started out as a chemistry major, but then I had a formative summer research experience for undergrads in a physical chemistry laboratory where I realized that I absolutely had no interest in chemistry research. <laughs> and so I went back to Cornell my senior year and I took every biology course I could possibly fit into my schedule with the idea that I would become a biochemist. And I also had a, I had some undergraduate lab experience and a molecular biology lab. And I, I ended up finishing um, a second major because, you know, when you've taken that much chemistry and biology and math and stuff, you know, the, the major just kind of falls into place. And so I left undergrad pretty sure that I wanted to go to graduate school. I thought I'd be a biochemist. Um, but I wasn't, wasn't quite sure what discipline I wanted to focus on. And a little bit burnt out because I had taken so much science. And so I got a, a job as a technician in a, a biotech company in the Cambridge, Massachusetts area. Um, and that really cemented for me the idea that I wanted to get my PhD because I, I basically looked around and, and saw what the PhDs did at the company, kind of the, the higher level thinking um, and, and project planning that they got to do. And I thought, that's, that's what I want to do. I want to be intellectually engaged in experimental biology for the rest of my life. And so, so I applied to graduate schools and, and I really didn't focus on neuroscience when I applied to graduate school, and I ended up going to a very general uh, at Harvard Medical School, their biological and biomedical sciences graduate program, which is really just a molecular cell biology type of catch-all um, program. And I ended up in Gary Rothkin's lab studying the genetics and molecular biology of longevity using the model organism C. elegans. And that was a great experience. It was a really exciting time in the longevity field. People were just understanding that um, genes really regulated the lifespan of organisms. And we were at the forefront of that. And it was, it was very fun. And I also just learned a lot of genetics and molecular biology. We, we also, while I was a graduate student, the first um, complete sequence of a metazoan was released, which was elegance. And so it was, I think, remarkably informative to be at the forefront of really the modern era of genome biology and to, to really watch, understand how people, um, how the technology evolved, how people assemble genomes, things like that. And also, I was in Gary's lab while uh, Andy Fire and Craig Mello and, and people that were discovering RNAi. Mm. Right. Some of the first people to use RNAi as a tool to knock down genes. Um, I mean, it seems almost incredible to think that there wasn't a time where that yeah. was standard course. And I'm sounding really old saying. <laughs> well, in, in a few years, people will be like, oh, I remember when channel rhodopsin didn't exist. And then that, that. Exactly. Exactly. It's that type of thing. So, so I was interested. Then I decided that I 
really, really was interested in answering questions of nervous system development. You worked as a lab tech at a biotech company. Did you consider going back to industry after you finished graduate school or were you sort of hooked on academic science? You know, I was hooked on the intellectual freedom of academic science. But I think that in the right situation, there can be a lot of freedom in, in industry also. Um, and, you know, Quite frankly, the NIH isn't really um, making uh, people feel too intellectually free at the moment. So there really wasn't a specific move away from industry. And, you know, I would allow some future mm -hmm. going there. But the academic track seemed a little bit more suited to my personality. And, you know, far it's worked out. So that's where I've remained. And I have to say, I do, I, I do really enjoy mentoring the graduate students in my lab also. And, and I think I would miss the real focus on mentorship that you have as a PI in an academic lab. So as you mentioned, you, you worked in Gary Rubskin's lab at Harvard, where you studied the insulin-like signaling pathway that regulates aging in C. elegans. Could you talk a little bit about what role insulin has in, in aging more generally? I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Ambrune, who's sure, yeah. in, the, in the genetics department, but she is actually one of the world leaders in, in understanding uh, organismal longevity. So our, our basic discovery was that when signals in C. elegans, so, so when insulin, and I will say that it's not entirely clear what the precise insulin homologue is in C. elegans, but when the insulin receptor is activated, it actually serves to shorten the lifespan of animals. So animals that have a loss of function mutation in the insulin receptor or some of the downstream signaling components actually live longer. Our work said that the insulin signaling impinges on a forkhead family transcription factor. And so it's really come in the last you know, 15 years or so, a number of labs in both mammalian organisms and, and um, cells and also a lot in C. elegans and flies that said that it's really the downstream targets of these forkhead transcription factors that are coordinating a genetic program that controls the animal's lifespan. So you then went on to do a postdoc in Gray Davis's lab at UCSF, where you studied synaptic homeostatic plasticity at the Drosophila neuromuscular junction. And specifically, you were the first to demonstrate that postsynaptic depolarization of the muscle results in presynaptic homeostatic plasticity. So this kind of retrograde signaling is not the canonical way that you, you think about synaptic signaling. And, you know, were you expecting that there was a, this retrograde signal? What was your understanding going in to doing these kinds of experiments? Yeah, I mean, I would have to say that the hypothesis in the field when I joined Gray's lab based really on, on Gray's work, the work of um, Gina Trigiano in mammals, although it seems to be potentially different at central synapses, um, and also Aaron D'Antonio, who's also a, a fly neurobiologist, um, that they had evidence, or, or when you think about how the neuromuscular junction in flies develop, it's obvious that there is, there's a lot of growth that happens. And so there has to be this really precise matching between the postsynaptic muscle as it gets larger and the presynaptic boutons. They have to match both their growth and their arborization onto the muscle and also how much neurotransmitter they're releasing. So, so in order to keep the muscles depolarization within a functional range. And so I would say that people imagined that there was a retrograde signal, that there was crosstalk between the muscle and the presynaptic neuron. 
And one of the questions that, that no one knew the answer to going into um, when I started my postdoc in Gray's lab was what signals could, could serve as that sensor, right? So could it be, I mean, we were really testing the hypothesis that a change in postsynaptic depolarization was sufficient to generate the signal. So in the absence of, of really any other potentially change in signaling molecules, like for instance, calcium flux through glutamate receptors or something like that, that people normally think of as a, as a signal transducer. Now it, it still, you know, could be calcium postsynaptically, right? And right. Assuredly playing a large role in how the signaling initiates, but it was really the first example where you could impinge on the ability of the muscle to depolarize and the presynaptic neurotransmitter release would compensate for that. It does stand in stark contrast to other forms of synaptic plasticity, which do require calcium influx through very specific calcium channels in order to, to kick off the signaling cascade that leads to postsynaptic plasticity in mammalian synapses. Yeah, and I mean, it still could be, cal it could be calcium through, you know, a calcium channel that's failing to open mm correctly when the muscle isn't being depolarized, right? So it still could be calcium, but it wasn't necessarily calcium through synaptic transmission, like the way that we think about something like LTP. Right. But it was really exciting because it was really at the beginning of, and, and Gray's gone on to do, you know, some really nice work on this, but really the beginning of trying to figure out the genetics of how this muscle and neuron can be talking to one another and to maintain this whole idea that you could, that there would be signals to maintain synaptic function within this appropriate range, I think was just being really well appreciated in 1999 when I started uh, Gray's lab. So you went on to do a second postdoc in Michael Greenberg's lab uh, at Harvard where you developed a, a novel RNAi-based screen for identifying molecules required for synapse development. So what assay did you use to develop this screen? So when I joined Mike's lab, people had just shown, although RNAi had been known to work for years now in C. elegans, and then people were using it in Drosophila, but in 2002, people had just shown that you could um, knock down genes using small RNAs in mammalian cells in culture. So as a geneticist by training, I really, really like gene discovery. And obviously doing forward genetic screens in, in mouse is very painful. But I took this as my opportunity to, to jump into the mammalian field, which was something that I had kind of shied away from up until that point. Because I thought to myself, you know, this technology is going to change the way people do gene discovery in mammals. And so, so we can use this. And so when I came to Mike's lab, there are all of these libraries that you can buy to RNAi things and and all of these companies where you can just go and give them a sequence and they'll design some siRNAs for you. Those didn't exist. So we basically had to make our own and we had to figure out what the best way was to transfect the neurons. So what we decided to do was to culture primary hippocampal neurons from rats. Um, we had a list of genes that we were interested in querying the function of them in synapse formation. So we would design siRNAs against them, transfect them into cultured hippocampal neurons, stain for markers of synapses, things like PSD95, synapsin, image the neurons, and ask what had happened to synapse density in the neurons in which we'd targeted these genes for, 
knockdown. And we spent a lot of time convincing ourselves and others that when you transfected in siRNAs into neurons and you saw an effect on synapse formation, that it wasn't just because you were making the neurons sick. So this is like plate and then manually doing it, not no 96 well plate and automated microscope or anything like that. Right. And you know, no one, although I hear talk that people are trying to automate this or have tried, no one has automated a screen like this where you're, you really have to look with a high magnification um, objective, right? You need a high mag image. You potentially need to center your cell in the middle of your image, right? All of these things, when you think about how to automate a microscope, right, to take an image, it's not trivial. How do you tell the microscope to go to the place where you see the most GFP, mm -hmm center on that and then take right. So all of these things, I don't know that anyone's overcome in an automated way. So yes, we were doing everything, we being me, mostly me and a graduate student, uh, Dana Hara in Mike's lab, we're doing this all by hand, making the cultures, doing the molecular biology to design the sRNAs um, and, and making them, transfecting the neurons, fixing, staining, imaging, and analyzing. So you, you mentioned this sort of existential crisis of, uh, I, I've, you know, I've, I've seen an effect, but now, you know, how do I know that the neuron is not just sick? So what, so what did you decide was, was good enough for this neuron to be not generally a sick? We did a number of things. The most direct thing that we did to answer that question was, um, and we can argue about whether or not this was good enough, but I think time has proven that it's, that it's all worked out. But we looked at the dendritic arborization. So for the neurons that we saw a decrease in synapse formation, we didn't see a change in the dendritic arbor. And so that said to us that this neuron was still healthy and capable of making synaptic connections. It was extending its dendrites appropriately, but yet it was not receiving the proper synaptic connections. And I should mention that when we do these experiments, our transfection efficiency is very low. And so that means fewer than 10% of the neurons in our cultures are transfected. So that means that we are querying the function of the gene that we're knocking down in the postsynaptic neuron because we're imaging the dendritic arbor and the vast majority of axons making connections onto that neuron have not been transfected with the siRNA. So how many different molecules did you look at? So we looked at 160 and our hit rate through the first pass was 16%. So right away, I would argue that that means that you can transfect a lot of siRNAs into neurons and see absolutely nothing happen. So <laughs> absolutely, there are off-target effects and you need to do good controls. But I think that siRNAs do not generally make cells sick when used correctly. We then repeated the hits and then our total hit rate for the screen, we lost about half of them, ended up being uh, four genes. So it ended up being roughly 8%, 5 to 8%, depending on how you count. From that, we then started studying the function of, of some of these genes in a more detailed way. How did you choose the 160 genes that you would look at? Right. So, you know, the dream would be to do this genome-wide and to do it completely in a completely unbiased manner. However, uh, that was obviously not feasible from a manpower perspective. And so we basically cherry-picked off of both lists of genes that have been generated in Mike's lab. So Mike is really interested in activity-dependent gene expression. And at the time, 
Now everyone does deep sequencing, but at the time everyone was doing microarrays to look at transcriptional, to do transcriptional profiling. So a number of my colleagues in Mike's lab shared lists of genes that were activity regulated or regulated at different time points in the hippocampal cultures. And then also Dana and I added genes that we thought might be interesting. So for instance, there was a growing appreciation that molecules that were required to guide axons to their appropriate target, so pathfinding molecules, that those might be playing a secondary role in synapse formation. And, and actually work in Mike's lab was one of the first to show that the F-Ephrins family of guidance molecules were in fact doing that very thing. And so Dana and I actually searched through families of axon guidance molecules. And we looked for things that there was evidence that they were expressed in the hippocampus at the time that we were looking, which was harder back in 2002 because the Allen Brain Atlas didn't really exist. And so about half the list was kind of some educated guesses on our part, so families and molecules that we thought um, would be interesting. So which ended up being the more the more successful strategy? So two hits were from the semaphorin family of axon guidance molecules. One hit was an activity regulated gene, this gene REM2. And then two hits were cadherin family members. So cadherins are pretty well established cell adhesion molecules. Although I would argue that understanding of their role in synapse formation is really not been well worked out yet. But the, the two molecules that really went forward when I started my lab was REM2, the activity regulated gene, and then the, the class four semaphorins, the pathfinding molecules. So I, I guess I'm a little confused because the next question I was going to ask you was about REM2 because you did a follow-up study in your own lab with REM2 and, and looking at its knockout and its overexpression profile and you were describing effects on dendritic branching. But I thought you were telling me before that the neurons still had relatively normal dendritic branching. Right. So that's actually something that happens when you start your lab and you get very good graduate students and postdocs in your lab. They actually find things that you hadn't noticed. <laughs> so it is true that when you knock down REM2, the dendrites are more extensively branched. And we've shown this in a number of different ways and a number of different systems now. And, and why we missed it in the first pass of the screen, I think there's a bunch of technical reasons why that was. Uh, but I will say that if you look in our supplemental figure where, <laughs> look at the dendrite, where we actually show the quantification of the dendritic branching, there's a hint that the REM2 phenotype is there, but it wasn't very robust. And so I just hadn't thought much about it, yeah. but then. When I started my lab and Amy Goretti, who's a graduate student who's about to defend her thesis, uh, started working on this, she really noticed and she was doing things in a much more REM2 focused way than I had been. She really noticed that they looked more branched and she started quantifying it and, you know, a, a project was born as it were. So I see. So what, which way do you think the causality goes that without REM2 that synapses are not developing and this causes the neuron to to branch more or? So I think right now we do not know if the two phenotypes are connected. Huh. So we know is that the normal function of REM2 is to promote excitatory synapse formation and inhibit dendritic branching. And what we have spent a lot of time working out in the lab is the signal transduction pathway that regulates the dendritic branching phenotype. And now we're starting to circle back around onto the synapse phenotype and ask, 
is there a relationship here? So, so I can imagine a relationship where if you make more dendrites that end up having fewer synapses just because there's more potential than to contact presynaptic partners, but it's still only going to contact the same number of presynaptic partners. Or I can imagine that they're two unrelated, genetically dissociable phenotypes. And so we're starting to ask those questions. And, and I think a little bit culture might not be the best place to ask those questions, but that's okay because we're moving into the mouse to to do this and doing some, some two-photon imaging to answer some of these questions. Oh, cool. So last year, your, your lab also published a paper uh, showing that expression of this molecule, SEMA4D, rapidly increases the density of inhibitory synapses in cultured neurons. And SEMA4D is a member of the SEMA4N family, which has more historically been implicated in developing of excitatory synapses. What led you to look at SEMA4D, and why did did you suspect that it was involved in inhibitory synapse formation, or was this a surprise? Yeah, that's actually kind of one of the strange things that came out of the screen. So we had gotten a pool that had a number of class 4 semaphorins. And the class 4 semaphorins, aside from our work, I would argue still are, are really understudied. A lot of the semaphorin work, both in pathfinding and synapse formation, has been on the secreted class 3. The class 4 are a little bit strange. They're they're transmembrane proteins. They have a short C-terminal domain of unknown function. So there's a few things that distinguish the class 4. So one of our pools had uh, semaphore B, C, and D in it. And so simultaneous with us deconvolving the pool to try to understand which gene was responsible for the decrease in excitatory synapse formation that we were observing, we also had branched out into looking at inhibitory synapse formation. Just, just so I make sure everyone understands, the, the, so when you say the pool, you say that your RNAi it was it was non-specific across these multiple molecules. Uh, not exactly. Oh. To try to increase the throughput of the screen, we would simultaneously transfect in siRNAs targeting ah. three individual genes, and then if one of those pools hit, we deconvolve. So then we do each gene individually. Gotcha. Gotcha. We had also started looking at inhibitory synapses, and what we discovered that. Although SEMA4D was not the member of the pool that was responsible for the decrease in excitatory synapse formation that we observed, it actually had a strong effect on inhibitory synapse formation. And so that got me interested. I mean, I really got interested in the class 4 semaphorins. First of all, because we got a couple hits out of the screen, it just smelled right, like they might be doing something in synapse formation across the whole family. And then secondly, the uniqueness of semaphore D to drive GABAergic synapse formation and not be involved in glutamatergic synapse formation really struck me because at the time, there really wasn't a lot known about GABAergic synapse formation. And I would argue there's still far less known about GABAergic, the molecules that are required to build a GABAergic synapse as opposed to a glutamatergic synapse is still not well understood. So I just thought it was an interesting opportunity to get more of a molecular handle on GABAergic synapse formation. So are the downstream elements in the semaphore D signaling pathway shared across the other semaphore and class fours, which seem to be involved in excitatory synapses, or are they different? Yeah, so it's it's complicated, and there's probably going to be overlap, but semaphore D signals through a receptor called plexin B1, 
And Plexin B1 is actually a wrap gap, so it serves as a GTPase activating protein, but it's also got other motifs on it that bind things like GEFs for other signaling pathways. And so I would say that the downstream signaling downstream of Plexin B1 is actually not particularly well understood. And, and we certainly, although this is one of the things we're currently working on, we certainly do not understand for semaphore D plexin B1 interaction to drive GABAergic synapse formation. We don't understand the signaling. But then the story is even more complicated on the excitatory synapse side. People like Alex Kalodkin's lab, for instance, that study the role of the SEMA3s in synapse formation, that, that there it's a whole nother set of receptors, plexin A's and neuropillants. And so I think the downstream signaling really just remains to be worked out. So one of the reasons I ask is that you also showed in this paper that if you took brain slices from epileptic mice and put SEMA4D on them, the increase in inhibitory synapses were sufficient to dramatically and rapidly decrease the hyperexcitability of these neurons. Do you think that SEMA4D or more probably some of its downstream elements could be used to treat human disease? Right, exactly. So let me just correct one uh, oh. detail of what you said. So we actually didn't take slices from epileptic rodents, we actually took slices, hippocampal slices from animals, treated them with TTX, and then it's it's a hyperexcitability paradigm, and the neurons have this rebound effect where they're spiking like crazy for the first few hours after you do that. So in that context, we treated with semaphore D, and we saw this relatively rapid within two hours decrease in this hyperexcitability, really a suppression. And so that's exactly what I'm interested in understanding. So we know that semaphore D signals through its extracellular domain through plexin B1 to mediate this rapid effect of GABAergic synapse formation. Semaphore D itself is a big secreted molecule, will probably never ever make a good drug. Right. And what can you do to the drug that you would want would turn on Plexin B1 specifically, or some component of its downstream signal transduction event that is involved in this GABAergic formation process. So that's exactly why we want to understand the signal transduction downstream of Plexin B1 to try to come up with a smarter way to tell the neuron to make more GABAergic synapses. Cool. Well, it would, it would be interesting if you, if you could figure it out. Uh, so finally, I'd just like to give you a chance to give us a preview of what you plan to talk about at Stanford if we haven't already covered it. <laughs> I think we really did cover the kind of two main areas of neural development that my lab really works on, which is the role of the molecular mechanisms by which neurons respond to their environment and change things like their dendritic arbor or their synapses. And we've been focusing in on this gene REM2 as a way to understand that process. And we've actually discovered, I think, something that was underappreciated, which was that it actually turns out REM2 is turned on when cells, when neurons get depolarized, but it actually functions to inhibit dendritic branching. And so I think most people think of neuronal depolarization as being growth promoting and the net effect in a lot of people's hands, including ours, of neuronal depolarization is to promote dendritic growth. But it actually turns out that there aren't just positive regulators of dendritic growth that get turned on 
by activity. Like so many other things in biology, it's a balance of these positive and, and negative signals. And the neuron is somehow really integrating this information and these signals and, and deciding what the final dendritic arbor should look like. And then the second thing that we're interested in the lab is how synapses form, how neurons make connections. And, and through Semaphore-D, we've really focused in on GABAergic synapse formation. And it's made me increasingly interested in really, I think that the fact that Semaphore-D can drive synapse formation on this relatively rapid timescale is really telling us something about how GABAergic synapses form. It says to me that there are the GABAergic synapses, the components of them are really poised and they're really awaiting a signal to form a synapse. And maybe Semaphore-D is unique in that respect, that it works at a later step in GABAergic synapse formation, or, or maybe it's not unique. Maybe that's a feature of neural development, that there's a lot of, and people have certainly shown that this is true for glutamatergic synapses, that there are these pre-assembled packets of molecules that are required to build a synapse and they seem to be able to stop and form synapses and what the signals are that tell these pre-assembled packets where to go and who to make a synapse with is entirely unknown and, and maybe Semaphore-D is one of those molecules. So, so I'm interested in the basic biology of things like synapse formation and so I'm hopeful that Semaphore-D is actually telling us something about the basic, um, some of the basic mechanisms of synapse formation and that we can use that as a handle to gain more insight into how GABAergic synapses form just during normal development. Well, in closing, we like to ask a series of shorter answer questions. So if you could go back in time and talk to yourself as a graduate student specifically, what advice would you give yourself? Hmm, that's a hard one. Um, I think that I really loved everything about graduate school and, and my graduate experience. I think that the one thing that I would do is take more neuroscience classes. Hmm. Okay. So on your, on your lab website, you have a list of favorite science quotes. Um, so what is your most favorite science quote and why? <laughs> so my favorite quote is the one from that movie, A League of Their Own. <laughs> a classic science. Uh... <laughs> classic science movie where the Tom Hanks character is saying to the Gina Davis character, uh, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's something to the effect of um, it's the hard that makes it good. If it was easy, everybody would do it. That has actually gotten me through many long nights at the bench thinking, this is so hard. Why am I here? And then thinking, because it's so good. You got to get through the hard parts and, and then you'll have figured out something that no one else has figured out. What's a bigger payoff than that? Yeah. So if I were to ask you what your first experiment was, what's what pops into your head? Might be high school, graduate school, doesn't matter. Just what's the first thing you think of? I think of some of the things that I did as an undergrad and in, in a molecular biology lab in this professor David Wilson's lab. And really I was trying to subclone something. And I think that I spent the whole semester driving this poor postdoc crazy trying to subclone this vector and we wouldn't go in and I'm sure I just was doing something wrong. <laughs> well, thanks for speaking with us today, Professor Parody. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. Uh, we hope you join us next week when our guest will be Caitlin O'Connell Rodwell, an assistant professor here at Stanford. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senior, Mark Padalina, and myself. For more information about NeuroTalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www dot neuroblog dot stanford dot edu.